Section 3 of Milton by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3. Perhaps the gods and demons of Aeschylus may best bear a comparison with the angels and devils of Milton. The style of the Athenian had, as we have remarked, something of the Oriental character, and the same peculiarity may be traced in his mythology. It has nothing of the amenity and elegance which we generally find in the superstitions of Greece. All is rugged, barbaric, and colossal. The legends of Aeschylus seem to harmonize less with the fragrant groves and graceful porticoes in which his countrymen paid their vows to the god of light and goddess of desire than with those huge and grotesque labyrinths of eternal granite in which Egypt enshrined her mystic Osiris or in which Hindostan still bows down to her seven-headed idols. His favorite gods are those of the elder generation, the sons of heaven and earth, compared with whom Jupiter himself was a stripling and an upstart. The gigantic titans and the inexorable furies. Foremost among his creations of this class stands Prometheus, half-fiend, half-redeemer, the friend of man, the sullen and implacable enemy of heaven. Prometheus bears undoubtedly a considerable resemblance to the Satan of Milton. In both we find the same impatience of control, the same ferocity, the same unconquerable pride. In both characters also are mingled, though in very different proportions, some kind and generous feelings. Prometheus, however, is hardly superhuman enough. He talks too much of his chains and his uneasy posture. He is rather too much depressed and agitated. His resolution seems to depend on the knowledge which he possesses that he holds the fate of his torturer in his hands, and that the hour of his release will surely come. But Satan is a creature of another sphere. The might of his intellectual nature is victorious over the extremity of pain. Amidst agonies which cannot be conceived without horror, he deliberates, resolves, and even exults. Against the sword of Michael, against the thunder of Jehovah, against the flaming lake and the marl burning with solid fire, against the prospect of an eternity of unintermitted misery, his spirit bears up unbroken, resting on its own innate energies, requiring no support from anything external or even from hope itself. To return for a moment to the parallel which we have been attempting to draw between Milton and Dante, we would add that the poetry of these great men has in a considerable degree taken its character from their moral qualities. They are not egotists. They rarely obtrude their idiosyncrasies on their readers. They have nothing in common with those modern beggars for fame who extort a pittance from the compassion of the inexperienced by exposing the nakedness and sores of their minds. Yet it would be difficult to name two writers whose works have been more completely, though undesignedly, colored by their personal feelings. The character of Milton was peculiarly distinguished by loftiness of spirit, that of Dante by intensity of feeling. 
in every line of the divine comedy we discern the asperity which is produced by pride struggling with misery there is perhaps no work in the world so deeply and uniformly sorrowful the melancholy of dante was no fantastic caprice it was not as far as at this distance of time can be judged the effect of external circumstances it was from within neither love nor glory neither the conflicts of earth nor the hope of heaven could dispel it it turned every consolation and every pleasure into its own nature it resembled that noxious sardinian soil of which the intense bitterness is said to have been perceptible even in its honey his mind was in the noble language of the hebrew poet a land of darkness as darkness itself and where the light was as darkness the gloom of his character discolors all the passions of men and all the face of nature and tinges with its own livid hue the flowers of paradise and the glories of the eternal throne all the portraits of him are singularly characteristic no person can look on the features noble even to ruggedness the dark furrows of the cheek the haggard and woeful stare of the eye the sullen and contemptuous curve of the lip and doubt that they belong to a man too proud and too sensitive to be happy milton was like dante a statesman and a lover and like dante he had been unfortunate in ambition and in love he had survived his health and his sight the comforts of his home and the prosperity of his party of the great men by whom he had been distinguished at his entrance into life some had been taken away from the evil to come some had carried into foreign climates their unconquerable hatred of oppression some were pining in dungeons and some had poured forth their blood on scaffolds venal and licentious scribblers with just sufficient talent to clothe the thoughts of a pander in the style of a bellman were now the favourite writers of the sovereign and of the public it was a loathsome herd which could be compared to nothing so fitly as to the rabble of comus grotesque monsters half bestial half human dropping with wine bloated with gluttony and reeling in obscene dances amidst these that fair muse was placed like the chaste lady of the mask lofty spotless and serene to be chattered at and pointed at and grinned at by the whole rout of satyrs and goblins if ever despondency and asperity could be excused in any man they might have been excused in milton but the strength of his mind overcame every calamity neither blindness nor gout nor age nor penury nor domestic afflictions nor political disappointments nor abuse nor proscription nor neglect had power to disturb his sedate and majestic patience his spirits do not seem to have been high but they were singularly equable his temper was serious perhaps stern but it was a temper which no sufferings could render sullen or fretful such as it was when on the eve of great events he returned from his travels in the prime of health and manly beauty loaded with literary distinctions and glowing with patriotic hopes such it continued to be when after having experienced every calamity which is incident to our nature old poor 
sightless and disgraced, he retired to his hovel to die. Hence it was that though he wrote The Paradise Lost at a time of life when images of beauty and tenderness are in general beginning to fade, even from those minds in which they have not been effaced by anxiety and disappointment, he adorned it with all that is most lovely and delightful in the physical and in the moral world. Neither Theocritus nor Ariosto had a finer or more healthful sense of the pleasantness of external objects, or loved better to luxuriate amidst sunbeams and flowers, the songs of nightingales, the juice of summer fruits, and the coolness of shady fountains. His conception of love unites all the voluptuousness of the Oriental harem and all the gallantry of the chivalric tournament, with all the pure and quiet affection of an English fireside. His poetry reminds us of the miracles of alpine scenery. Nooks and dells, beautiful as fairyland, are embosomed in its most rugged and gigantic elevations. The roses and myrtles bloom unchilled on the verge of the avalanche. Traces, indeed, of the peculiar character of Milton may be found in all his works, but it is most strongly displayed in the sonnets. Those remarkable poems have been undervalued by critics who have not understood their nature. They have no epigrammatic point. There is none of the ingenuity of Filicaja in the thought, none of the hard and brilliant enamel of Petrarch in the style. They are simple but majestic records of the feelings of the poet, as little tricked out for the public eye as his diary would have been. A victory, an unexpected attack upon the city, a momentary fit of depression or exaltation, a jest thrown out against one of his books, a dream which for a short time restored to him that beautiful face over which the grave had closed forever, led him to musings which, without effort, shape themselves into verse. The unity of sentiment and severity of style which characterizes these little pieces reminds us of the Greek anthology, or perhaps still more of the collects of the English liturgy. The noble poem on the massacres of Piedmont is strictly a collect in verse. The sonnets are more or less striking, according as the occasions which gave birth to them are more or less interesting. But they are almost without exception dignified by a sobriety and greatness of mind to which we know not where to look for a parallel. It would indeed be scarcely safe to draw any decided inferences as to the character of a writer from passages directly egotistical. But the qualities which we have ascribed to Milton, though perhaps most strongly marked in those parts of his works which treat of his personal feelings, are distinguishable in every page, and impart to all his writings, prose and poetry, English, Latin, and Italian, a strong family likeness. His public conduct was such as was to be expected from a man of spirit so high and of an intellect so powerful. He lived at one of the most memorable eras in the history of mankind, at the very crisis of the great conflict between Oromazdes and Aramanes, liberty and despotism, reason and prejudice. That great battle was fought for no single generation, for no single land. The destinies of the human race were staked on the same cast with the freedom of the English people. 
then were first proclaimed those mighty principles which have since worked their way into the depths of the american forests which have roused greece from the slavery and degradation of two thousand years and which from one end of europe to the other have kindled an unquenchable fire in the hearts of the oppressed and loosed the knees of the oppressors with an unwonted fear of those principles then struggling for their infant existence milton was the most devoted and eloquent literary champion we need not say how much we admire his public conduct but we cannot disguise from ourselves that a large portion of his countrymen still think it unjustifiable the civil war indeed has been more discussed and is less understood than any event in english history the friends of liberty laboured under the disadvantage of which the lion in the fable complained so bitterly though they were the conquerors their enemies were the painters as a body the roundheads had done their utmost to decry and ruin literature and literature was even with them as in the long run it always is with its enemies the best book on their side of the question is the charming narrative of mrs hutchinson may's history of the parliament is good but it breaks off at the most interesting crisis of the struggle the performance of ludlow is foolish and violent and most of the later writers who have espoused the same cause old mixon for instance and catherine macaulay have to say the least been more distinguished by zeal than either by candour or by skill on the other side are the most authoritative and the most popular historical works in our language that of clarendon and that of hume the former is not only ably written and full of valuable information but has also an air of dignity and sincerity which makes even the prejudices and errors with which it abounds respectable hume from whose fascinating narrative the great mass of the reading public are still contented to take their opinions hated religion so much that he hated liberty for having been allied with religion and has pleaded the cause of tyranny with the dexterity of an advocate while affecting the impartiality of a judge the public conduct of milton must be approved or condemned according as the resistance of the people to charles i shall appear to be justifiable or criminal we shall therefore make no apology for dedicating a few pages to the discussion of that interesting and most important question we shall not argue it on general grounds we shall not recur to those primary principles from which the claim of any government to the obedience of its subjects is to be deduced we are entitled to that vantage ground but we will relinquish it we are on this point so confident of superiority that we are not unwilling to imitate the ostentatious generosity of those ancient knights who vowed to joust without helmet or shield against all enemies and to give their antagonists the advantage of sun and wind we will take the naked constitutional question we confidently affirm that every reason which can be urged in favour of the revolution of sixteen eighty eight may be urged with at least equal force in favour of what is called the great rebellion in one respect only we think can the warmest admirers of charles venture to say that he was a better sovereign than his son 
he was not in name and profession a papist. We say in name and profession because both Charles himself and his creature Laud, while they abjured the innocent badges of popery, retained all its worst vices, a complete subjection of reason to authority, a weak preference of form to substance, a childish passion for mummeries, an idolatrous veneration for the priestly character, and above all, a merciless intolerance. This, however, we waive. We will concede that Charles was a good Protestant, but we say that his Protestantism does not make the slightest distinction between his case and that of James. The principles of the Revolution have often been grossly misrepresented, and never more than in the course of the present year. There is a certain class of men who, while they profess to hold in reverence the great names and great actions of former times, never look at them for any other purpose than in order to find in them some excuse for existing abuses. In every venerable precedent, they pass by what is essential and take only what is accidental. They keep out of sight what is beneficial and hold up to public imitation all that is defective. If in any part of any great example there be anything unsound, these flesh-flies detect it with an unerring instinct and dart upon it with a ravenous delight. If some good end has been attained in spite of them, they feel with their prototype that their labor must be to pervert that end and out of good still to find means of evil. To the blessings which England has derived from the Revolution, these people are utterly insensible. The expulsion of a tyrant, the solemn recognition of popular rights, liberty, security, toleration, all go for nothing with them. One sect there was which from unfortunate temporary causes it was thought necessary to keep under close restraint. One part of the empire there was so unhappily circumstanced that at that time its misery was necessary to our happiness and its slavery to our freedom. These are the parts of the revolution which the politicians of whom we speak love to contemplate, and which seem to them not indeed to vindicate, but in some degree to palliate the good which it has produced. Talk to them of Naples, of Spain, or of South America. They stand forth zealots for the doctrine of divine right, which has now come back to us like a thief from transportation under the alias of legitimacy. But mention the miseries of Ireland. Then William is a hero. Then Somers and Shrewsbury are great men. Then the revolution is a glorious era. The very same persons who in this country never omit an opportunity of reviving every wretched Jacobite slander respecting the Whigs of that period have no sooner crossed St. George's Channel than they begin to fill their bumpers to the glorious and immortal memory. They may truly boast that they look not at men but at measures. So that evil be done, they care not who does it, the arbitrary Charles or the liberal William, Ferdinand the Catholic or Frederick the Protestant. On such occasions their deadliest opponents may reckon upon their candid construction. The bold assertions of these people have of late impressed a large portion of the public 
with an opinion that James II was expelled simply because he was a Catholic, and that the revolution was essentially a Protestant revolution. But this certainly was not the case, nor can any person who has acquired more knowledge of the history of those times than is to be found in Goldsmith's abridgment believe that if James had held his own religious opinions without wishing to make proselytes, or if wishing even to make proselytes he had contented himself with exerting only his constitutional influence for that purpose, the Prince of Orange would ever have been invited over. Our ancestors, we suppose, knew their own meaning, and if we may believe them, their hostility was primarily not to popery but to tyranny. They did not drive out a tyrant because he was a Catholic, but they excluded Catholics from the crown because they thought them likely to be tyrants. The ground on which they in their famous resolution declared the throne vacant was this, that James had broken the fundamental laws of the kingdom. Every man, therefore, who approves of the revolution of 1688 must hold that the breach of fundamental laws on the part of the sovereign justifies resistance. The question, then, is this. Had Charles I broken the fundamental laws of England? No person can answer in the negative unless he refuses credit, not merely to all the accusations brought against Charles by his opponents, but to the narratives of the warmest royalists and to the confessions of the king himself. If there be any truth in any historian of any party who has related the events of that reign, the conduct of Charles from his accession to the meeting of the Long Parliament had been a continued course of oppression and treachery. Let those who applaud the revolution and condemn the rebellion mention one act of James II to which a parallel is not to be found in the history of his father. Let them lay their fingers on a single article in the Declaration of Right, presented by the two houses to William and Mary, which Charles is not acknowledged to have violated. He had, according to the testimony of his own friends, usurped the functions of the legislature, raised taxes without the consent of Parliament, and quartered troops on the people in the most illegal and vexatious manner. Not a single session of Parliament had passed without some unconstitutional attack on the freedom of debate, the right of petition was grossly violated, arbitrary judgments, exorbitant fines and unwarranted imprisonments were grievances of daily occurrence. If these things do not justify resistance, the revolution was treason. If they do, the great rebellion was laudable. But it is said, why not adopt milder measures? Why, after the king had consented to so many reforms and renounced so many oppressive prerogatives, did the Parliament continue to rise in their demands at the risk of provoking a civil war? The ship money had been given up, the Star Chamber had been abolished, provision had been made for the frequent convocation and secure deliberation of Parliaments. Why not pursue an end? confessedly good by peaceable and regular means. We recur again to the analogy of the revolution. Why was James driven from the throne? Why was he not retained upon conditions? He too had offered to call a free parliament and to submit to its decision all the matters in dispute. Yet we are in the habit of praising our forefathers, 
who preferred a revolution, a disputed succession, a dynasty of strangers, twenty years of foreign and intestine war, a standing army and a national debt, to the rule, however restricted, of a tried and proved tyrant. The Long Parliament acted on the same principle and is entitled to the same praise. They could not trust the king. He had no doubt passed salutary laws, but what assurance was there that he would not break them? He had renounced oppressive prerogatives, but where was the security that he would not resume them? The nation had to deal with a man whom no tie could bind, a man who made and broke promises with equal facility, a man whose honor had been a hundred times pawned and never redeemed. Here, indeed, the long Parliament stands on still stronger ground than the Convention of 1688. No action of James can be compared to the conduct of Charles with respect to the petition of right. The Lords and Commons present him with a bill in which the constitutional limits of his power are marked out. He hesitates, he evades, at last he bargains to give his assent for five subsidies. The bill receives his solemn assent, the subsidies are voted, but no sooner is the tyrant relieved when he returns at once to all the arbitrary measures which he had bound himself to abandon, and violates all the clauses of the very act which he has been paid to pass. For more than ten years the people had seen the rights which were theirs by double claim, by immemorial inheritance and by recent purchase, infringed by the perfidious king who had recognized them. At length, circumstances compelled Charles to summon another parliament. Another chance was given to our fathers. Were they to throw it away, as they had thrown away the former? Were they again to be cozened by le roi le veux? Were they again to advance their money on pledges which had been forfeited over and over again? Were they to lay a second petition of right at the foot of the throne, to grant another lavish aid in exchange for another unmeaning ceremony, and then to take their departure till after ten years more of fraud and oppression their prince should again require a supply and again repay it with a perjury. They were compelled to choose whether they would trust a tyrant or conquer him. We think that they chose wisely and nobly. The advocates of Charles, like the advocates of other malefactors against whom overwhelming evidence is produced, generally decline all controversy about the facts and content themselves with calling testimony to character. He had so many private virtues. And had James II no private virtues? Was Oliver Cromwell, his bitterest enemies themselves being judges, destitute of private virtues? And what, after all, are the virtues ascribed to Charles? A religious zeal, not more sincere than that of his son, and fully as weak and narrow-minded, and a few of the ordinary household decencies which half the tombstones in England claim for those who lie beneath them, a good father, a good husband, ample apologies indeed for fifteen years of persecution, tyranny, and falsehood. We charge him with having broken his coronation oath, and we are told that he kept his marriage vow. We accuse him of having given up his people to the merciless inflictions of the most hot-headed and hard-hearted of prelates, 
and the defense is that he took his little son on his knees and kissed him. We censure him for having violated the articles of the Petition of Right, after having, for good and valuable consideration, promised to observe them, and we are informed that he was accustomed to hear prayers at six o'clock in the morning. It is to such considerations as these, together with his Van Dyke dress, his handsome face, and his peaked beard, that he owes, we verily believe, most of his popularity with the present generation. For ourselves we own that we do not understand the common phrase, a good man but a bad king. We can as easily conceive a good man and an unnatural father, or a good man and a treacherous friend. We cannot, in estimating the character of an individual, leave out of our consideration his conduct in the most important of all human relations, and if in that relation we find him to have been selfish, cruel, and deceitful, we shall take the liberty to call him a bad man, in spite of all his temperance at table and all his regularity at chapel. End of section 3